0: Podcast—the only Book Club podcast that immediately deletes each episode's files permanently after uploading them—they're too beautiful for this world, Amanda. Too pure, too perfect. We gotta burn them all down.
1: Mm -hmm. Makes sense to me.
0: Do you take that approach to many of your just endeavors in life? Do you make a meal, eat it, and then throw the rest away right away?
1: Hundred percent. There's no such thing as leftovers here.
0: (laughs) Ooh, what a bold move with a family and everything. That's—I mean—that's like almost masochistic in a way, or something. (laughs)
1: <laughs> Got to start fresh every single time.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah. I even, I'd I'll, I'll go so far as to admit that I actually buy new laptops after we record every episode. New mics, new yeah. everything.
1: Yeah, when you, it gets when expensive, you... guys. You should uh, throw some money at them. <laughs>
0: that's that's right yeah this podcast endeavor is draining my bank account but like the great men of history like the great men in the devil in the white city sometimes when you manifest a creation of such magnificence you just the only thing you can do is burn it all down and try and help yourself forget that it ever happened exactly otherwise it's a taunt <laughs> we are as i mentioned the lightly literary podcast joining me as always is my co-host amanda welcome back amanda Hello. We're back after a vacation for us, though. To you, the listener, this will be going up in the feed promptly and it, on its usual schedule. If you have no idea why we've been alluding to Destroying Creations, that is because today we are recording a Book Club Part 2 episode on The Devil in the White City by Eric Larson, which is a narrative nonfiction story, and we've been making allusions to that work. We are on social media, so make sure to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at The Lightly Literary Podcast, all one word. You can find our accounts both there, where we do promotions and reminders and chats about the books that we've been reading. As I mentioned, this is a book club episode, and it's for part two of The Devil in the White City, so we will be spoiling that work in its entirety. It's kind of a narrative nonfiction as well, so it has, I guess you could say it has spoilers, right? I mean, history, it's kind of odd to say you can spoil history, but...
1: Yeah, well, not everybody knows about this, I guess, kind of of spoilers, yeah. Yeah, so if you're (laughs) sensitive
0: to those at all, then go ahead and read the book and come back to this episode. It will stay up in the feed. When you are prepared to listen to it... I had chosen this book. If you listened to part one, you'd know that. But I chose it because the prompt was to pick something a friend or family member had recommended that you never read. And so, again, thanks and shout outs to Aunt Susan, my Aunt Susan, for this recommendation for a book we both really quite enjoyed. Any notes up top, Amanda, before we jump into the podcast?
1: No, I'm ready. Ready?
0: Excellent. Well, let's make a magnificent creation, and then afterwards we can delete it <laughs> or something. <laughs> Sounds great. Yeah, <laughs> upload it and then hit cancel, Control Alt All Delete, etc. I don't know any keyboard <laughs> functions or shortcuts. You know what I do know? The first segment of our podcast tonight, uh, segment one, this is where we revisit a nonfiction work. Usually for the second part of the book clubs, we like to return to a segment just called Cocktail Party Quotes, and we're updating them. This is just a chance for us to give a few more quotes from the back half of the book that we really liked or that stuck with us, or crucially, that would make for, you know, good conversation at a cocktail party. Amanda, out one of your quotes from the second half of this book, what did you notice?
1: Sure. I chose a quote from page 374 and it says the fair taught men and women steeped only in the necessary to see that cities did not have to be dark soiled and unsafe bastions of the strictly pragmatic. They would also be beautiful. Mm. Um, So I chose this quote uh, because it highlights the idea of the white versus the black city, which is an image that Larson plays with a lot in this book and also there's the comparison to Europe, which is brought up quite often. Yeah. There's the, the fair versus the Paris exhibit. There's the princesses visit the um the the infanta, right? The yeah. so, of um Spain. Spain, I, guess? I think. Yeah. And um, the City Beautiful movement um and there's also gayer as sherlock holmes the comparison there and also hh H. holmes is compared to jack the ripper quite often so there's mm-hmm. a lot of comparison between the um what's going on in america during this time and um what europe is known for which is like the idea of like this sophistication and beauty and uh, superiority in a lot of ways culturally speaking so the idea of um, the white city that the fair kind of showing that america uh, can also be that
0: and yeah. is also that no certainly the grandiose ambitions that's a word I feel like I'm going to say a thousand times today so be forewarned, yeah, listeners for this book for sure <laughs> but the yeah the grandiose plans of the architects involved kind of yeah we're all consuming it wasn't just to make something functional it was also to make it beautiful and representative and even fun I guess I'll segue that into a quote I noticed it's uh, from Olmsted our old crotchety friend are you going to miss him
1: I am. I love him. Yeah,
0: yeah. he's a great figure to follow along. I'd I'd probably read some kind of... I really hate biographies, but I'd probably read some kind of biography of him of some sort.
1: An autobiography, Mm. I feel like, would be amazing by him.
0: Yeah, fantastic. My gosh. (laughs) That's so true. Well, on page 276, he has all manner of complaints, as he's apt to do. He's got a very keen eye. He's insightful, analytical, and uh, can be cutting. And so... God, there's so many quotes here I wanted to read. Essentially, though... He was complaining about kind of the workfulness of the fair and that they were losing some of the fun. Um, he mentions a couple of things here. I'll pick a couple of quotes. He mentions that litter was everywhere with too few men assigned to clean it up. The fair needed twice as many, he said, and greater scrutiny of their work. I've seen papers that have been apparently swept off the terraces upon the shrubbery between them and the lagoons, Olmsted wrote. Such a shirking trick as in a workman employed to keep the terraces clean should be a criminal offense. He was bothered, too, by the noise of the steam vessels that Burnham, over repeated objections, had authorized to travel the exposition's waterways alongside the electric launches. The boats are cheap, graceless, clumsy affairs, as much out of place in what people are calling the court of honor of the exposition as a cow in a flower garden. And his greatest concern was Jackson Park, and that it was not fun. Quote from him, There is too much appearance of an impatient and tired doing of sightseeing duty. A stint to be got through before it is time to go home. The crowd has a melancholy air in this respect, and strenuous measures should be taken to overcome it. So I think this is just such an essential moment. He had voiced this concern. I think it was him or one of the other kind of highly involved people, planners and all that. Somebody had voiced that concern earlier, and it. I just thought the counterfare with the Wild West people and the sort of other attractions that popped up outside of the official exposition was just such an intriguing contrast and in sort of competition and almost opportunism in a way. It was such a, it provided such an interesting look at how you can try and provide almost like a counter service or counter programming to something else that was going on. And uh-huh. I and I enjoyed his or I was glad that he voiced that concern and was just wanted to make sure that they weren't losing sight of this, that it wasn't just look at you know, behold our grand civilization or something, and that it was something for an entertainment too. I guess that's partially where the Ferris wheel comes in as well, because that became right. both an entertainment and a marvel of the world, a representation of progress and science and civilization, whatever that would mean. So, kind of biting way. But I also just enjoyed, er, so I enjoyed that, but I also enjoyed the intellectual part that, yeah, there was this concern of if you get too wrapped up in Doing something grand, you may lose the purpose you had in the first place, or you may lose some kind of simpler notion or purpose of what it could do.
1: Yeah, the idea of um, the purpose of the fair, I thought Olmsted really hit on it as well. The preoccupation of the people who were involved in the fair was that they had to outdo the Paris exhibit, and they had to they had something to prove. But Olmsted's like, yeah, okay, that's great, but the whole purpose, the actual purpose is for people to come to have fun. So mm-hmm. yeah, I agree. I, I found that fascinating. And and Olmsted's also explanations for his concept, like his aesthetic concepts and stuff, are just so well explained by him that it's mm-hmm. Yeah it's difficult to imagine anyone trying to Uh, trying to just, like, do the opposite of what he wants them to do.
0: (laughs) Right, yeah. I think he does come across, now granted, he meets kind of a depressing end in the book, and, you know, whatever, and the end of an old person's life who's had a rich life doesn't always have to be depressing or something, but, yeah, he when he was kind of astute or alert in his full capacities, he... Said a lot of very insightful things about the fair, and Mm -hmm. I think, yeah, we've laughed and had our fun, not at his expense, but with him (laughs) in terms of his voice and kind of his crotchetiness, but he, for all of that, had, yeah, really tremendous insights, and I think there's a reason why Burnham kept going back to him or something, or kind of put not a lot of pressure on him, but relied on him pretty steadily throughout the whole thing.
1: Yeah, definitely listened the most to Olmstead versus Mm -hmm. anyone else that he was working with.
0: For sure, yeah. And, you know, he's got Central Park to his name. So, you know, whatever. He's done he's mm-hmm. done some stuff.
1: <laughs> yeah, and the Biltmore.
0: And, I was going to say, <laughs> in our neck of the woods, the Biltmore, which is definitely a top North Carolina tourist destination, I would say deservedly so. I'd add in my two cents. Yeah, I think so. I think it. it's odd to see such opulence on display, but at least it can be turned into kind of a public good or utility now. I don't know. It's an odd thing, but...
1: Yeah, I've, I have not been.
0: <laughs> it's it's worth seeing some history come alive like that. I just my concern, of course, is the glorification of having seventy bedrooms or whatever, or whatever yeah. it is. I forget the number. It's yeah, truly preposterous. Anyway, like a hotel home. That's my quote. Uh, another one for you, Amanda. Anything that stood out?
1: Sure. Um, I chose uh, one from page three seventy, and it says the Chicago Times Herald took the broad view instead of homes. He is a prodigy of wickedness, a human demon, a being so unthinkable that no novelist would dare to invent such a character. The story, too, tends to illustrate the end of the century. I thought that was really interesting because, uh, for a couple of reasons, so the idea of the human demon um, comparing Holmes mm-hmm. to something demonic is something that is done throughout the book. Um, Holmes, even in his one of his memoirs that he writes while in prison, um I think the sec it's the second one that he says that he can't help himself from murdering people because it's he's he sees himself as actually like physically turning into a demon like he's sprouting um horns and stuff like that. So I right. thought that was really interesting and also the last statement of that quote the story tends to illustrate the end of the century so Holmes's story illustrates the end of the century. I found that really interesting because it's like, is it is it an indication of, of the end of the century? Like murder mm-hmm. and secrecy and stuff like that. That's an interesting statement to make.
0: I think, yeah, it's one of the threads that... We kind of said this in the book recommendation, which we recorded out of order this time, but I think one of the admirable things is that he'll... Larson, I mean by him, but he'll leave... He leaves a couple of notes like that towards the end and really never connects the two narratives or goes out of his way to lay out a thesis or some sort of grand connection or something. I think that you could make plenty of them. My simple reading of that claim that he made or, or mentions is that this all is really right before World War One and Two, which profoundly changed the way people killed each other and therefore the way people thought about warfare and what it costs and what it involves just what that whole enterprise entails so the whole mechanized the way he deployed technology to aid him and the way he made it impersonal and sort of these weird almost scientific like measures and approaches to this i think there's you could make the case looking at it through that lens that it's sort of a precursor to well if we if we have so many achievements and accomplishments in, for example, engineering or, you know, design creations of, of mechanical things that, and I mean, this is all, this has all been swept through modernism and in the literary sense and all that stuff. So I'm not unearthing some new thing here, but it's essentially, yeah. How do we look at the world then when we can design it to dispatch people so efficiently and, you know, so clearly. So I think that would be the, the reading, but he didn't say any of that, and he <laughs> doesn't talk about it. And I think that's you know part of the power of it. Hopefully, if a careful reader is thinking about these things, then they would maybe make some of those same thoughts or conclusions. But that's kind of where my head went with it.
1: Nice, I, and also to support yours is he does mention several times the um, the the giant weapon, the cannon from Germany.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah,
1: yeah. And and how monstrous that was, and how people feared it, but also were amazed by it.
0: So, right, right. Yeah. yeah, it's kind of one of those specters. And Holmes's narrative is its he's his own fascination, and people always get into the, well, people always, I say, now. Nowadays, the psychology of serial killers is a cultural fascination for people. I think it's become its own kind of... Storytelling, narrative style, touchstone, whatever, in the United States in 2021 anyway. It's its own kind of cottage industry in a way. And so his whole psychology is so unique and disturbing in a sense. And his approach, the things he did and said, the fact that he even wrote a memoir, which I guess they he did allude to it and reference it throughout the book, right?
1: Uh, he Larson? mentioned it a couple of times, yeah, before the okay. end. Yeah.
0: Yeah. So anyway, that all just provides an even deeper character study for a person who... Yeah, it's clearly out of sorts, as you noted. Um, cool. Any other quotes for the cocktail party to offer? I've got a couple quick ones. I, yeah. Do you want me to throw one out?
1: Yeah, of course. I, I
0: could throw one out there. I didn't pick any for Holmes, which is you were reading yours and describing yours, I only just noticed. I don't, I don't know why I maybe should do some kind of analysis of my own thinking on that in that regard. <laughs> I don't know why. That. I, to me, the Holmes narrative really petered out in the second half of this book. Not that it didn't grip me. But it's almost like he kind of sidelined it as the fair was going on. There was the part about he how he kind of wooed that woman and her sister too, and sort of had that double play going, which showed his uh, but at that point, his social savvy and cunning and his you know creepiness, so to speak, had already been well proven. I guess it just didn't it didn't feel like something new to me. It was just another example, I suppose. Mm-hmm. So I until that whole detective chase at the end, which he really sections off as a its own part of the book, right? He drops all the architectural threads just to investigate the detective
1: and follow him.
0: So that, I guess maybe that's why I didn't pick as many Holmes quotes, because by the time I got to that section and I realized, oh, this is just going to be how Holmes wraps up what happened, I just kind of read it like a thriller and blitzed through it. I didn't, I don't know. It's, that's how thrillers go, right? I wasn't thinking really hard about it. I was just kind Mm of seeing where it would end. So to its credit, for sure. Anyway. For another quote, I think the final site of the White City is really worth reading, and it's a really particularly chosen quote by, I think, William Stead, the British editor. And uh, the paragraph reads on 333, The night the exposition, that night, sorry, the exposition illuminated the fairgrounds one last time. Beneath the stars, the lake lay dark and somber, Stead wrote, but on its shores gleamed and glowed in golden radiance, the ivory city, beautiful as a poet's dream, silent as a city of the dead. And it's really the perfect footnote to the whole endeavor. I think it's got the the perfect imagery and it's something really delicate and rare. It's the ivory and it, but also it's kind of casting against this lake, which is just sort of this puddle of darkness. And then the. City of the Deadline, I think, was the part that really just got me the most. It's such a perfect quote. And it just, yeah, came to represent to me the whole... I mean, really, the whole book is about these human endeavors that people chase down and they feverishly dedicate themselves to, and it's all just temporary. I mean, no matter what, what, however you cast your lot in life and whatever grand or not-so-grand ambitions you have, it's it's all temporary anyway. The White City is just an insane, compressed (laughs) version of human civilization and development just into a, you know, four year span or something shows the, the grandiosity. And then it also shows just the decay of it all that it won't last and it can't. And so I don't know that I thought that that, I mean, Larson, I'm sure could have conjured his own writing to finish it off and give some final impression, but you know, I think it's in his research nature and the way he annotated this book to end it with another person's quote, but one so perfect. I just, yeah, that I thought that was maybe the most perfect, I don't know, paragraph in the book or something.
1: Yeah, he does. I will say that a lot of his, um, the quotes that he incorporates in the, the book, I agree, just really well done. And, and it's chosen very specifically for a particular scene and for a particular mood mm-hmm. that he's creating. And I think that shows his mastery as, um, as both a, an academic and a historian, but also as um, a writer, even though they're not mm-hmm. his particular words, he recognizes how perfectly it fits within a situation for him. So I yeah. enjoyed that quote as well.
0: Yeah, it was and maybe I was just reading sort of the <laughs> the way the narratives played together. I was reading the whole thing as sort of a pessimistic the whole book has, this is a simplification, of course, but sort of a pessimistic air, at least in my mind, it did. You know, he never, never took that much time, Larson, to celebrate the successes without alluding or foreshadowing, not alluding, but foreshadowing some kind of upcoming disaster. I think the Ferris wheel remains the only, I mean, the, the affair was a success that he makes, goes out of his way clearly to highlight that it was profitable and and it did get enough people and it attracted all the praise and attention it it wanted. But I think like the only thing that from beginning to end was a success was the Ferris wheel because even in the parts when there was doubt in the beginning, it still showed the persistence and kind of that there was a spark of genius there. Mm -hmm. I can't think of any other aspect of it that came out so, you know, so cleanly.
1: Yeah, I agree. I mean, the entire... We we mentioned this earlier um, in one of the other episodes, but it's it's a book of foreshadowing, which means that he has to build that suspension to pull us through the narratives, and yeah. um, even even the bookends of of the book itself. I mean, it starts with the, a reference to the Titanic, and then the end mm-hmm. is the disaster of the Titanic, followed by Burnham's. Kind of tragic death, where he falls into a coma and and dies from mm-hmm. that so it's 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 a book of of death in a lot of ways there's there's a lot yeah. of catastrophe
0: of course and he he follows all of the major at characters, if you want to call them that, in a work like this, people to their deaths. I don't think there's one major person he doesn't. He makes sure we know how they died, and so yeah. that that's a choice. He could have ended it on that last day of the fair or thereafter. Done the couple of chapters about how the academics interpret this whole thing, like he does. I pulled a quote from there too. I'll read in a bit, and yeah, and then called it, you know. But it's, I think he, in the in the grandest sense, wanted to chase these things down to their death, just like the fair, kind of. And yeah, it just embodied something. I think that quote was just perfect. Uh, any other quotes for you?
1: Uh, yes, yeah, so I got I've got one more, and it's from page three fifteen. Um, mm-hmm. and it's kind of a paragraph, so it's a little bit longer, but. Two weeks later, workers scuffled with police outside City Hall. It was a minor confrontation, but the Tribune called it a riot. A few days after that, 25,000 unemployed workers converged on the downtown lakefront and heard Samuel Gompers, standing at the back of Speaker's Wagon number 5, ask... Why should the wealth of the country be stored in banks and elevators, while the idle workman wanders homeless about the streets and the idle loafers who hoard the gold, only to spend it in riotous living, are rolling about in fine carriages from which they look out on peaceful meetings and call them riots? This was a particularly unsettling question, for it seemed to embody a demand for much more than simply work— Gompers was calling for fundamental change in the relationship between workers and their overseers. This was dangerous talk to be suppressed at all costs. So I chose this quote because I was like, dang, that happened back then. It's still kind of happening in our time too with like the idea of how uh, of media coverage and how media coverage uh, can sensationalize some things but also suppress other things and the idea of like media is supposed to be this bastion of truth, but actually there's always a slant to it. And the idea as well of, um, I was thinking of like the, the wall street, um, protesters too. um, a couple of years, how many years ago was that? Wow.
0: (laughs) The occupy wall street.
1: Yeah. I think,
0: I think I was in college when that happened. I believe if not, it was close to that. So 20, I would say between 20, 11 and like 14, maybe Yeah, I would, that would be, I, it only happened for you. It was a big thing for about half a year. Right. So, right. but I think it must've been in that range. That would be my guess.
1: Yeah. So that came to mind too, with these questions of like, mm-hmm. um, wealth and, and how the wealth, um, is not divided in the country and stuff like that. So I, I just found it really almost indicative of what's going on now and how it's interesting that it, something that was going on at the turn of the century is still kind of like a question that we have for ourselves today
0: Mm -hmm. no certainly and i think i mean this was as high in america as opulence got though by any economic measure today is worse it's just that we don't talk about it in such terms like we learn about the gilded age in school right and or you know in american curricula you're supposed to But it's almost treated as sort of like, well, we, you know, we've legislated that out or there were movements and unions and there were, you know, things that that kind of corrected it. But in terms of wealth inequality, it's never been worse than today, I don't think, by any measure. I mean, you obviously have to, like, correct for for inflation and things, but (laughs) unless I'm way behind on my my economics research or something, that – Anyway, just something to considering you're hundred percent right it's term in terms of a cocktail party discussion conversation it's it's perfect, I think something worth bringing up into the final days or current present day, yeah, and it does call into question, I think too, maybe this is why I had the whole pessimistic air of the uh, air of the book and the fair i could it couldn't it gripped me the whole time is what I'm trying to say, and I think that's because. It's just such a sacrifice for and for what? I mean, I know he obsessed in the narrative over becoming profitable, like and getting to that level to make sure it was all worth it. But just for something that will immediately be useless, it's kind of it's like the Olympics are today for a lot of countries that don't have the that already don't have the public infrastructure to host it it just becomes ruins and it's sort of a strange sacrifice of course there's all kinds of numbers floating around maybe it's worth it to host the olympics maybe not it's a, you know you're making these weird Decisions of investment, but in some countries you see the ruins of it all, and you just think, "What was <laughs> really? Why did we do? I mean, it, just to celebrate something, or it, we're not adding anything permanent to the public record? You know, I guess nothing's permanent, but we're not we're not adding something substantive that will help people for a long time, right? We're not we're not doing something pragmatic and useful, which might be boring, but uh, yeah, I think it calls into question, or at least raises good questions of, I don't know, ambition, planning, and what to strive for. So. Yeah, great questions.
1: That's a great comparison, too, to the Olympic Mm -hmm. structures that are built. Yeah.
0: There's just no other modern comparison, I don't think.
1: Yeah.
0: Got it. Look at our county fairs by comparison now. It's all fried food and, like, the quickest Ferris wheel setups you've ever seen in your life. Those (laughs) things get put up in, like, 20 minutes. (laughs) Yeah,
1: instead of months. Terrifying. Yeah,
0: terrifying. (laughs) And, they're you know, they don't go quite as high and they're not as grand, but they they do work and they get the kids excited. Yeah, yeah. Do we really need such, you know, endeavors? Can't we just play our circus games? They're just as fun and they take minutes to set up. Yeah. I mean, yeah, let me throw, let me throw a ball or a golf ball at some glass bottles and <laughs> shoot a basketball <laughs> at an oblong sized hoop or some, you know, it's some kind of geometrically impossible hoop or something. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Anyway, maybe I'm just a simple-minded simpleton. I'm going to forego my final quote to read it. I'm just going to briefly summarize. On 375, at the very end, Larson does get into – so he sort of took his own approach to interpreting this entire event throughout the book. At the end, he does expand to acknowledge some of the legacy of it, the criticisms of it. I just thought that part was intriguing because it's important to bring in other perspectives of historians, academics, people who also – you know, stare at this stuff for a long time, think about it a lot and try and understand it. And I just appreciated that part, I suppose, is all I'd say. There's some interesting quotes in there about the kind of the architecture of it being outdated and putting America back behind thinking like, why are we going back to these European ideals? You know, why do we want to make everything just look like Greece and Rome? You know, can't, can't we come up with our own ideals and, you know, that embody our own spirit and all that stuff? Just an interesting challenge. I mean, if you wanted to be harsh to the book you'd say it's too little too late you know it's token just a token mention it's not like throughout the book he was in putting in those challenges but again for the narrative he was spinning it felt like the perfect place for it and you know just enough at the end to kind of awaken your mind or something i'm not sure if that ending if that those couple pages at the end struck you
1: mm, yeah for sure
0: yeah okay well, cool. Let's move on to imaginary essays. This is the part of the part two book clubs where we each give the other person an imaginary essay prompt. This is not so we can actually write the essays, as that would be crazy, but instead so that we can prepare a response, sort out some thoughts about the book that we read, sort out our, our feelings, and some do some analysis, essentially, of the book. Amanda, I will throw your prompt at you first if you are prepared. Sure. Okay, well, Let's do it. <laughs> that's the kind of chipper 10 p.m. response we're looking for here. That's the energy that's going to carry us through. All right, so my question for Amanda is this. This is, I'll admit, the most, I don't know, like pop culture-y question I've ever asked you. But I think for this book, it's a, I don't know, I I think it's a great question. I don't know why I'm patting myself on the back for something so It silly, was a great question. I, just,
1: I was straining my brain like, man, yeah. how would I?
0: <laughs> I? Yeah, and I that all sounded self aggrandizing or something. But I I only say it's a great question, because it's a great thought experiment that's already being done, kind of it behind closed doors. And as soon as I heard about it, I realized, oh, that would be fun and challenging to do. So it's, Anyway, I'm, it's really not my question because this is happening. This book is getting a film adaptation supposedly by Martin Scorsese and maybe starring Leonardo DiCaprio as Holmes. I think that's actually on the back burner. That might have been like put to the side or canned or something, but that was the rumor like four years ago. So my question would be, or prompt would be, tell me how you would approach adapting this book into a two-ish hour movie, so no cheating, no like 10-hour miniseries or whatever. In that case, you could just do it all. Um, the, so what elements would you think would be must-includes, which would you eliminate, and how would you change the structure or fit it into a movie format? So you can go big and creative on this one. How would this become a movie in your mind?
1: So this this question was, was pretty difficult for me to wrap my head around because... The thing about movies... Movies and books are just so fundamentally different in a lot of ways. Because uh, Mm -hmm. a book, you can... There's a lot more subtlety that's allowed. um, Whereas with movies, you kind of have to... Uh, tie things together more neatly for the audience to mm-hmm. catch on to certain things, right? So, for example, uh, the way that the two narratives in this book are tied together is just a lot of like imagery. There's a lot of themes and motifs that tie things together, of but course, that won't, yeah. yeah, that won't necessarily work in a movie, right? So, uh, one example that I'm thinking of specifically is that he uses the blue eyes. Larson uses the the. The repetition of the phrase "blue eyes," because mm-hmm. both Holmes and Burnham, as well as Olmstead, actually they all have blue eyes, and he talks about how blue eyes are a mark of the genius, according to some people. Um, whether mm-hmm. it's a genius for good or a genius for evil is up to the person.
0: Right, um,
1: right. So that is something that. Ties the narratives together throughout the book, but that is not going to (laughs) fly in Mm -hmm. a movie. (laughs) You
0: Um, get some close-up shots of Leo's eyes in a maybe as he's murdering someone or something, and he looks kind of like he's orgasming. Or I could imagine that shot, yeah, yeah. closing like the end of Psycho. Do you you know that movie? The end of that movie. Yes, when he's taught when they finally catch the is it Norman Bates? Yeah, when they catch Mm -hmm. him. And he starts talking to himself or he's talking to his mother and that whole psychotic break is happening. Yeah. It's kinda it would kind of be like that. Like mm-hmm. a devilishly pleased, almost, you know, yeah, he's he's like deriving great pleasure. They'd yeah. get some eye shots out of Leo for that, I think.
1: Yeah. Yeah, they could, but people would be like, Oh, it's just a really nice
0: <laughs> mm-hmm. nice mm-hmm. close
1: up of Leo. Yeah. <laughs> um they wouldn't understand necessarily the the purpose of that. But so yes. And I think, as far as like the two narratives go, although the architecture and the World Fair stuff is really compelling in the in the book, um, the murdery parts are going to be what ultimately is is attracting uh, people, I think, for the movies. Oh yeah. So which would then flip this book completely on its head because most of the uh, drama and the background and the setting and everything else that the real development of this, this book is actually, I think in the architecture pieces, um, the, the Holmes narrative, while it is interesting to read, it is less fleshed out, generally speaking, than the world fair narrative. So there's going to have to be some creative restructuring and I'm thinking probably less truthiness with the movie aspect because they're going to have to to fit everything in two hours and to more obviously create one narrative out of two they're going to have to be really creative with how they do that so this is what this is more of like what i am predicting will happen yeah yeah. (laughs) so um but i think that the beginning and the ending of the book could definitely fit with the movie aspect as well, that the Titanic is a disaster, which haha, also Leo was in. Um,
0: yeah. Right. Let's bookend his <laughs> career. Come on. Now.
1: <laughs> exactly. Um, so I think that the Titanic disaster starting that with like Burnham, um, learning about who was it that was on the Titanic? One of his buddies.
0: Miller or Mead or something. Oh yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Millet? Millet? Millet. Millet.
1: It was Millet, the paint, the painting guy. Mm-hmm. Um, so, um, but that could start off with him at as an older man, and then the flashback would be the the meat of the story, um, which then at the end would also go back to Burnham finding out about Millet's death on um, on that. Anyway, so I think that would fit in really well, um, and I think that's um, uh, a good way to show that. But what's going to happen, I think, is. Um, the Holmes narrative is going to have to be more obviously connected to Burnham, which makes me think that what's going to happen is there's going to be a whole lot of, I think that I would hope that the movie includes a lot of the same political intrigues. Um, Burnham's um, struggle to maintain the ability to be a leader um, without being hampered by these committees um i hope that they develop that i really really hope that olmstead is just as crotchety and
0: (laughs) oh i mean yeah yeah. his his first or what what is the term i'm looking for his primary source narrative stuff for that is irrefutable yeah and he and his health is already pretty far into decaying at that point yeah yeah he'd be quite a figure
1: i really hope that Olmsted is is uh, his his characterization it really shines in this, and that yeah. he um, he is in a lot of the movie. I really hope so, um, and I think that the <clears throat> I really hope too that just the the idea of like the the dramas and the things that are going on on at the World Fair itself, the, the development of it, and and the stuff leading up to the planning, as well as like all the mishaps that they've encountered um during that time i hope that they do um develop that and i and i feel like a lot of the drama will be played up in that respect but i also mm-hmm. really am hoping that they keep in mind that there were bigger things outside of the fair that were also happening like um, development of union unions and like the strikes that were going on, the panic, the financial panic that was happening. Yeah, yeah. Um, I hope that they, they include that stuff. It would be a must-have mm-hmm. for me, I think, because I found that fascinating in the book. Now with um, the Holmes stuff, what I'm predicting is going to happen is he's, I think that Holmes in this movie adaptation is going to be more involved with the fair, perhaps in the respect of like poaching victims from the fair perhaps
0: yeah Um, which they sort of insinuate that obviously they don't take his actual memoir or accounts as serious because he was such a so he was a sociopathic pathological liar so you know who knows but they do speculate that he probably killed plenty of people from the fair it's just that we don't know who at this point The the sourcing and the record keeping on only a few of them is really good and then the rest is just kind of i mean it's lost so
1: yeah yeah and um, it's it's tough. I think they're gonna try to have it be that Holmes is like very way more involved in the fair and that he's poaching victims from the fair And I think that they're going to try to tie him to burn him himself more in order to create a more cohesive narrative between the two stories. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, probably because of um, the the need for a cohesive narrative. What'll happen is, like, when Holmes is hanged in the end, um, probably that's going to, like, correspond or something with, like, the burning, the final burning of the fair or something Mm -hmm. like that to show the end, which will tie it up really nicely, even though it doesn't happen that way in reality. (laughs) Um, Yeah, yeah. So I think they're going to have a lot more... They're gonna play more with timelines to fit the narrative, and I think that they're going to bend the reality of Holmes in order to fit it into the Chicago fair narrative.
0: Yeah. I can picture the first shot of this movie. It's Holmes getting off a train in Chicago looking pristine. City's a total muck shit show and he just looks overjoyed. (laughs) Yeah. You know, and he's like comes in an all white, you know? Anyway. Okay, and then thoughts on, I know you have some notes here on a couple other characters or elements too, thoughts on Prendergast, was it? I never got his name, Pendergast, whatever. Yeah,
1: Prendergast, yeah. the uh, the madman who uh, shot Harris, was it Harris or Harrison, I can't remember. The, yeah,
0: the mayor. The mayor, The yeah. mayor, yeah.
1: Um, so I think that he could also be a useful tool in the movie portion, especially if Holmes is not actually like revealed we could do uh, some interesting things with like point of view where Burnham's point of view a lot of the fair could be done in like third person point of view whereas Holmes's sections could be from first person point of view like the camera guy is like Holmes um which would allow Prendergrass to also be kind of like a red herring perhaps where when he shoots um the mayor it's like oh okay so now there's not going to be any murders but in reality Holmes is still out hunting and stuff like that yeah yeah um so that could be an interesting and also that would keep the two narratives like kind of cohesive but also show that they're it that there are two different realities as well in a way
0: right I do you want me to give my quick read on this yeah
1: I would love it because
0: I've, I've thought about this a lot since I finished it it is right for adaptation is the first thing I would say my reading on this is pretty i had so many thoughts as i finished it as to how this should happen but my my thoughts are pretty clear here this is an either or proposition in my mind either you do the burn a movie and you cut Holmes out of it which obviously would never sell they they would want the murder story that that's mm-hmm. it that's the thriller that gets it but there is such a story here that could be told about polit- politics about deep making deals, about city development, about the turn-of-the-century competition, like national pride, cities, all that. You know, just men men making plans and all that shit. Uh, mm-hmm. it, I think that's a movie here, for sure. It would end with, you know, some of these men dying off and not seeing the fair to its end, some successes, failures, and then obviously the, the decay of the city and sort of they all just have to leave this huge accomplishment of theirs, this fight they endured, and to just kind of, you know, can fade and be... A small triumph and tragedy at the same time. I think that's compelling. I think, though, if you go Holmes, you don't. Burnham's not in the movie, in my mind. It would mm-hmm. be pointless to do it. That's a completely different endeavor. And I think that's what, again, I find so brilliant about the book is because you're allowed to kind of put those things together as you want and make connections across them and think more deeply about it. I think it's totally, as a book, it sits in a lingering way really well. Mm -hmm. But I think if it's a Holmes movie, just make it a really compelling study of the sociopath and then obviously incorporate the fair as part, all the setting would be in service of showing his development, his lack of morals, his, you know, murder spree. It would all just be in service of that. My thought on how to do the Holmes version that would, I think, work and you could get a ton of fair stuff in there too if you wanted it would actually, the story, the movie would open with the detective chasing him around and then as he meets and interviews people, it's all flashback stuff. Like, mm-hmm. oh, I was cheated out of this thing by Holmes or, oh, he took all this money for me and built this creepy thing. You know, and then maybe some of the family's like, oh, my daughter... This is what she said about him. She married him, and I met, and then they could get and imply a lot of the murder stuff without being too gruesome about it, and it could still be creepy as all hell, Mm because, you know, people had, and you could tell in the way Larson wrote it, people had recollections about him that seemed weird once they were told. Like, once you're told he's a murderer, you're like, oh, yeah, he... He did say that thing. He did install that furnace with no gas exit or right. you know like he he did tell me to put that uh uh soundproof room in with a gas hole in it and I did it was like why okay weird. He asked me to get in there and scream and I you know like all that stuff you could make that stuff really creepy and then I think it would just conclude with him you know catching Holmes maybe at that point since it would be caught up in the timeline you could do one of those interviews would be one of the final creepy scenes you'd see scenes you'd see how you know disturbed Holmes really was and remorseless and all that stuff and who knows you know I'm not writing a screenplay or something but that was that was my only really clear structural idea for it but I think and in those flashbacks, you could sneak in stuff about the fair. I'm sure, you know, if he's chasing him around interviewing people, they could say, like, oh, I'd never seen anything quite like the fair. And you could throw some facts in there, you know, like, man, mm-hmm. I saw this building. They had 20,000 people. And then, you know, flashback to the the buildings and all that stuff. And so I think you could sneak a lot of the imagery in that way and really still make it an investigation of Holmes. But that's just my that was my rough thought when I finished it. But I I truly can't fathom how you'd have it both ways in a movie. This right. book. Yeah. I truly can't. I don't, I mean, cause there's no co- connections. It would all be, you'd be jumping perspectives. It would be really harsh to do that in a yep. movie. It would so, be. So yeah, those are my thoughts. Any, any other thoughts on your imaginary essay that I just stole at the end? No. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I had a lot of thoughts on that one. I was so glad I could give it to you as well. I thought it was a fascinating <laughs> one. Um, do you want to throw yours at me and we'll see what I got?
1: Yeah. Um, yeah, so this narrative is bookended with Burnham's encounter with the Titanic tragedy. So how does this narrative choice fit with Larson's story and style? Does this choice actually fit, in your opinion?
0: Yeah, it's not something, if you hadn't asked me, it wouldn't have been something I would have remembered. I would have just remembered that he died quietly and his friends started to die off and all that. I would have remembered the human ending stuff. But yes, now that you asked me that, yeah, I think it's a perfectly good crossover it's just all about grandiose human failings. And the Titanic was an immediate failure of uh, catastrophic proportions. The fair was a grandiose Titanic success, but that also led to the same result is that we made this thing and eh, it's not even going to last really. It's gone, you know, as soon as it came sort of. And the, the people who pulled this off are just left to kind of remember it and reminisce about it. And it's it's over as well. So I think it kind of fits that. I don't know. It's not a disturbing tone what's the tone word i'm looking for here (laughs) morose not morose Mm, i mean sad is the generic word
1: yeah yeah that's really gross
0: yeah like sorry sorrowful is a great one yeah it's a sort of just a sorrowful ending i think it fits and it it also is fitting at the end he mentions the lincoln memorial and that's kind of the next big plan We, we he wants to think in terms of these civil civilization defining gestures these structures of the most grand ambitions and so that that's fitting for burnham I think on page 80, I pulled a quote. I, I won't read it for now, but just for time's sake, but Burnham is talking about that he's meeting for the first couple times about it. And it's all about beating Paris, showing off that our achievements are the greatest the world has ever seen. It's just that's always the thing with him. And so I think that twist at the end to juxtapose his you know, success, quote unquote, with that utter failure is, yeah, I think just cements the tone for me. So I thought when you asked me or wrote that in my mind, I was like, oh, it is kind of a perfect little twist to hammer that at the end. I, I again, can't say I would have carried that reading if you hadn't asked me. So, you know, once again, we justify our own mental exercises. <laughs> yeah. um, I think too, that the, throughout the narrative, this is all amplified the more I thought about it. So just looking back, even on 174, the decision to paint the fair white, which he describes as kind of a collective hallucination, which you know, whatever. I'm sure the decision making just wasn't clear or something. But it says something about, and I think let me try and pull the quote here on 174. And I'm just trying to, I'm just going to try and vamply find this here. I should really highlight these quotes, huh? I'm going to keep this all in. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, it's, it says here, During the meeting, an idea arose that in the short run promised a dramatic acceleration of the work, but that eventually served to fix the fair in the world's imagination as a thing of otherworldly beauty, you know, cast down from the heavens. That last part's my own editorializing. But yeah, it's sort of like pragmatism meets genius meets whatever. And I, a lot of his descriptions, Larson's, are that way, where it, the, the things the fair did achieve and accomplished it all did come across as grandiose and sort of Mm high-minded the ferris wheel too if you look at some of the descriptions of that and how he teases it out and wants it to be a surprise they kind of embody if you interpret it generously the feelings that these men had that they were doing like impossible things they were displaying human progress in the most beautiful pristine way they could and i think that that reading of course gets pretty tangled up with other things in the book, but. there's like things about national pride politics and economic realities all that stuff you've mentioned rightly so like unions working conditions and so i think there there's that's all tangled but when i went back and thought about that reading and how the titanic ending kind of fits into it it did seem to fit a lot of the descriptions and i think it all felt pretty cohesive does that sit right with you
1: yeah for sure and and another Point that I would say to your point is the idea of you were talking about like almost like a gilded age there. The idea of wealth and and how wealth, the accumulation of wealth, is so important. I mean, like the Chicago Fair was just harping on like not only does it have to be perfect and beautiful, but we need to be making money off of that. Um, Larson takes pains in the in the final chapter there, in the final Titanic chapter there, to point out that like the the greed of the company who created uh, Titanic—they they did not mm-hmm. have enough lifeboats, right? To right. Uh, because of money, and so that ties in, I think, really well with the idea of of the wealth discrepancy and the importance of wealth over just about everything else.
0: Yeah, um, opulence. In,
1: in, yeah, exactly. Life and everything else, which is yeah. why the unions were were happening. So.
0: Hmm. Yeah. yeah, no, I think the only the final reading I'd give to your question was that I, the nerves and anxieties about ending the fair too then fit in with how the Titanic is presented, because despite their achievements, it was all impermanent. And they, they even knew that themselves, that they had done a, a grand thing that was never going to last like the on 322, some of the final descriptions of them. They talk about burning the fair, just burning all the buildings and setting it ablaze so it kind of quickly ends and is quickly forgotten. And it says, rather, this talk of conflagration was a way of easing the despair of watching the dream come to an end. No one could bear the idea of the white city lying empty and desolate. A cosmopolitan writer said, Better to have it vanish suddenly in a blaze of glory than fall into gradual disrepair and dilapidation. There is no more melancholy spectacle than a festal hall. The Festal hall? I guess that's a term. I don't know. The morning after the banquet, when the guests have departed and the lights are extinguished. And so... And then it talks about how Olmsted kind of cut himself off from the project at the end, too. Just mm-hmm. it all seems too hard to leave behind. So I think... That, plus the Titanic, plus, again, a lot of the descriptions building it up throughout, it just leaves you feeling kind of haunted at the end. Maybe that's a historical commentary on how, you know, transitioning into the modern age, the 20th century, there's these looming world wars. There are these ways that we would twist ourselves over our own technological development and stuff. Mm -hmm. I think that's also, you could read it, perhaps there's a narrative tying with Holmes there, how he accomplished in his own a horrific way something you know of an achievement or something or some kind of foreboding achievement of, of murder and horrible immorality or something there's readings here of this but yeah so the more I, I read back over your titanic thought i yeah agreed with that a lot of the elements in the story click into place with that ending it's you know i think it's another way that he can get in larson does love to throw in a little historical connection though doesn't
1: he he does yeah a bit of a For name sure.
0: drop so I think, <laughs> you know, I perhaps he couldn't resist it, but thematically I think it holds up in all those ways that we just kind of talked about.
1: Uh-huh.
0: Any final thoughts on that ending?
1: Uh, nope, I'm good.
0: Okay, excellent. Well, let's do a couple quick segments to close out the pod. This one I think will be especially quick today. We like to do, for the ending of a book, we like to do a segment called The Lost Pages where we describe or pick a topic that was underexplored, underrepresented, or we think just... The text could have used more of maybe a different book maybe a chapter something like that and we couldn't help but agree on this one amanda so take it away
1: (laughs) pictures
0: yeah man what are we doing what are we doing why are there four pictures in this book (laughs) it's just wild (laughs) i would almost rather he have put all of the footnotes which take about 30 pages at the end just put them on a website and at the end of the book say hey uh, here, just go to this, if you really are going to check these, here you go, just go to my blog or what have you, and then here's 30 pages of pictures instead.
1: <laughs> yeah. I uh oh. Especially, I mean, his. I enjoyed his descriptions of the White City and everything, great job, but I really yeah. just wanted to see what it was like, and I know that he, Burnham was sure, like made sure that the, the pictures were very much controlled, right? Um, people had to If they were going to take pictures, they had to pay a certain amount of money with cameras and all this stuff. So he had, like, complete control over that. But there were only a handful of pictures included in this book. And I was just like, oh, I really just want to see – or just, like, sketches. I would also love to see, like, their sketches of what their original designs were for the city. Oh, yeah. Right? The
0: architecture, the – and, you know – Far be it from us to jump in, in terms of the archival quality and the historical record of all this. But come on, some of this must have survived. You know, one blueprint, you couldn't have given us a blueprint or some of the even like supplemental work that they did. At the time, just to show the general approach, or you know Olmsted, right? If they didn't get tons of pictures of what he ended up creating with the the trees and the planting and all the flowers, okay. If none of those pictures survive for whatever reason, or you couldn't use them, show us other things that he did or designed. I, you know, here's a picture of his, you know, the Biltmore. Like even that, just give a little bit of a taste of something from right. from these people. I don't, it stunned me when you put this, you filled this doc out first, and when you put that in to the Lost Pages, I, I, there's nothing else. This just needs so much more pictures. (laughs) Are we poisoned from reading, like, Americanized textbooks growing up or something? I don't know.
1: Well, maybe.
0: (laughs) Are we being too simple-minded with this? I just couldn't believe there were five photographs in here.
1: yeah. Yeah. I will say that I went ahead and like looked online too. There were some pictures and also like Jackson park now in Chicago is still like really pretty. So mm-hmm. yeah.
0: Yeah. Even I'm, things that have survived. I know a lot of it was taken down, but I think a cup didn't a couple buildings stay yeah, up. They the, found the, other purposes. The big,
1: big building, the liberal liberal arts building is still there.
0: Oh, okay. I'm sure I've been into it then because I've done, you know, growing up near Chicago, you go there on field trips to visit all the sites and do the museums and such. So if it's been repurposed, I bet I've been inside of it.
1: Oh, I yeah, I'm sure I yeah. have.
0: Yeah. No, I, yeah, I don't, there's not much more to say other than I guess I understand that at the time photography is not what it is today. So, you know, I understand there's certainly historical difficulties, but each picture, especially, I don't know which picture will stick with you, but the, the one of the final shots, which is when the White City was completed and they got a picture of it from the lake, it's it's just kind of oversaturated enough to be, you know, we're so inundated with HD photographs these days that when you see some of these old ones, it's it just looks so ghostly and, I don't know, given all the descriptions in the book, it was just such a beautiful and kind of haunted photograph. I don't yeah. know, just gorgeous. I'll remember that picture for sure.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, the cover yeah. picture beautiful
0: yeah yeah except on the cover it's got that weird there's some kind of graphical saturation that was kind of i don't know i imagine right it's that's Mm -hmm. been stylized i was thinking of the one from inside the book one of the final photographs but Mm. totally yeah show us that they talked about the hall of honor was it or the place of honor they couldn't show us that a couple more from a couple different angles they said it was the most magnificent space ever made by mankind or something like so the people said that (laughs) you know anyway uh, well,
1: and the wooded island that Olmstead fought so dearly
0: for like mm-hmm. no pictures of the outside festival with the Westerns going on, you know, yeah. the people shooting their guns off and doing their shows. I don't know. Anyway, I guess we're just simple tin plebeian type readers here. You just, you know, <laughs> feed us more pictures, please.
1: Yeah, please. <laughs>
0: yeah. All right. And we will conclude now with critical assistance. We always end part two book clubs this way where we reach outside of our own brains and we. Find critical kind of reception or reviews of the book or the work online. We go to other sources for this. Amanda, start us off with what you pulled for the critical assistance. What are we going to be, who are we talking about here?
1: Sure. This is from the New York Times and it's called Books of the Times at a Serial Murderer to 1893 Chicago's Opulent Overkill. And this is by Janet Maslin. I was attracted to the title, so... also, just New York Times is such a great source for this stuff. Um, yeah. So Mr. Larson likes to embroider the past. He so relentlessly ref- uh, fuses history and entertainment to give this nonfiction book the dramatic effect of a novel, complete with abundant cross-cutting and foreshadowing. Ordinarily, these might be alarming tactics, but in the case of this material, they do the trick. Mr. Larson has written a dynamic, enveloping book filled with haunting, closely annotated information. And I agree with all of this. And yeah. Um, it's, yeah, it definitely has a dramatic effect of a novel, which is why, like, right. when I recommend this book to my friends, I'm like, yeah, it's nonfiction, but it doesn't feel like nonfiction. Um, even though you're learning the entire time about, like, something that not a whole lot of people have studied as far as, like, the Chicago Fair and necessarily the times of that. So I found that really great. And also the uh, the particular adjective that she uses, which is haunting, I find that also very um, uh, correct for this book in that with all that foreshadowing and with the dramatic tone and like the Right, right the the pessimism that runs through the entire mm-hmm. book, um and all the deaths involved. It's uh it is, I think, haunting to the extreme, which is why I think the cover picture is also so perfect, because that the the image itself, it looks like a ghostly city, um, which mm-hmm. is another haunting image for this For book.
0: sure. Yeah. Yeah, what else uh, from the article stood out to you?
1: Um, She also says, it's worth noting that Mr. Larson insisted on doing research by himself, only with first-hand sources, no researchers, no internet. When he found one of Mr. Prendergast's threatening notes at the Chicago Historical Society, he says, I saw how deeply the pencil dug into the paper. And I thought this was Mm -hmm. really interesting, an interesting fact about the author, Eric Larson, and just shows how much dedication and care he puts into uh, he had put into this book and into this work. And it also provides information about like how he was able to draw certain conclusions about some of these people and give them characteristics that in a history book, let's say, we would not necessarily get. So his analysis of the first-hand information, I think, was really key in how he was able to develop his um, more novelistic type style in in this book.
0: He comes back to Prendergast. Now, it did pay off, quote unquote, just because he because he killed that figure. It also clouded the ending of the event, right? It wasn't a celebration, jubilation anymore. It was this another dower thing to kind of dampen the effect, the grandiose spectacle of the fair. So I I got we. I questioned halfway through the book why he kept bringing this person up, (laughs) you know, without paying it off. And yeah, so it did, quote unquote. But I could see how. He could be cut out of the narrative just as well, not and just at the end mentioned that the mayor had this person who had stalked him and then murdered him. I, I think it's because of the, those investigative things that he must have been really affected by those notes that he discovered or you know had dug up, and so I think that must have just bugged him so much that he felt like he had to do it throughout the book or something.
1: Mm-hmm. And
0: yeah, it's it shows that his research I think affected him how he yeah. went about weaving the tale.
1: Yeah, for sure.
0: Yeah. I like the final quote, too, you should share. I like the first line of it, the random compendium. Because oh, I yeah. that feeling did not fully escape me. I, I still think it was so well done overall. But there were times when I thought, well, and this is the paragraph where he gets to say 10 things from history that that are related somewhat to the fair.
1: Right, right. Yeah, there's a lot, a lot of information, which ties yeah. in, I think, with the firsthand research stuff. Everything that he researched, mm-hmm. he's like, this is important, and let me just throw everything in there, but yeah, she right. writes, some, um, though it risks turning into a random compendium, the devil in the white city is given shape and energy by the author's dramatic inclinations. He succeeds in mm-hmm. affirming the historical and cultural importance of the 1893 exhibition, which he says may have helped to spawn such other wonders as Disneyland and Oz. And he unearths a crime story of enduring interest, if only because Holmes, in the words of the Chicago times, Herald, was so unthinkable that no novelist would dare to invent such a character, a smart, non fiction writer did it instead Mm -hmm. um so yeah the the beginning of this this particular quote is there's just so much information here but despite there being so much information because he does have more of a uh novelistic style almost it doesn't seem as overwhelming whereas if it were presented without that style it would be just like reading a history book where you're just like inundated with all these facts here's another person here's another fact about this person here's but because he weaves it into an actual story an actual narrative it's more palatable in a lot of ways
0: yeah no completely I think it's yeah, in a sense, I think essential. I don't know. I was just reading the cover again. The quote on the cover is about, is absorbing a piece of popular history as one will ever hope to find, which is a fitting enough description, I think, fits with the quotes you read, too. It does. It's it's so benefited from the style, for sure. Yeah, for sure. I agree. And I, He does make note, too, Larson, that two other, I think, historians or something, wrote books about Holmes. So there are other sources that you can track down if you want to get another perspective maybe i don't know how much he would agree or disagree with their readings of holmes Mm -hmm. but at any rate yeah i also did double check one of the annotations at the end he did do there are a couple scenes when he kills people in the in the book that he did have to interpret a lot he said and he went to truman capote's book to sort of stylistically learn how to describe a murder that no one saw and that no one will ever be able to describe but that you're gonna try and interpret anyway so Mm Yeah, that creativity is in there. I guess is what I'm saying. So. Yeah. Yeah, excellent. Okay. For my critical assistance, I pulled Do you ever use the AV Club? It's the it's like an offshoot of The Onion, I think, but it's not satire. It's their media website or something i think
1: i've never heard of this no yeah
0: i use it for things all the time just recommendations and reviews of stuff they do a ton of mm-hmm. reviews there of just t- mostly tv and movies but sometimes music and books and such I, and i was i was looking for criticism of this i don't know my normal sources failed me so i had to go but the av club came up this is from a review in like 2003 or 4 when this book came out so it was short it was very brief and now pretty old but there were two quotes uh, it was by keith philip Keith, sorry, Keith Phipps, by the way, so just a review of his this book. Two quotes stuck with me, and this is the first one. Just as the fair served as a mirror to both the past and a window to the future, Holmes is presented as a foreshadowing of the century to come, a pitiless killer with a talent for machinery. I guess that quote just woke in me, or kind of awoken in me, I don't know, my thoughts about how this book does sort of want to present grander historical themes, but will not go out of its way to tell them to you per Mm se. I think there were a lot of ways you could read Holmes and how he interjects into this story that, yeah, he just, I don't know. I admire Larson's restraint in that regard. I don't know if that quote is true for you too, but
1: yeah, I think the, um, Holmes is presented as a foreshadowing of the century to come. Yeah. That's a great, also it ties into the, the quote that I had pulled up earlier too. the idea of, um, the story of, of Holmes being an indication of what, of of the passing of that um, century, of that that time period. Yeah. Yeah. And the
0: solitary reason why we have credit scores, as we've mentioned in episode <laughs> <Yeah>. one. <laughs> thanks, thanks, Holmes. Thanks for that. Yeah, thanks, Holmes, you <laughs> son of a bitch. <laughs> Haunting us from beyond the grave. Yeah, fantastic. <laughs> The other quote I'll pull here briefly, I, again, another quote I pretty much just completely agree with, But and I, I it's funny, as I re- read this quote now, I think, have I just been parroting this, uh, this, because it's the same thing my sentiment has been, but it says, <laughs> Larson lets his parallel narratives exist side by side, seldom directly commenting on their connections, and the devil in the white city is all the more powerful for it. Larson makes the fair look like a little 20th century rolled into a couple of months. The final part, I think, is an ambitious read of it, but I... I can't really dodge that reading either. The more I would think about that and the more I thought about it, I kind of nod in agreement. I Larson definitely does not go so far though. That's that's this person's reading, but I do think that the lack of connection between the sections, this will be my final time. I praise it, even though I've done it a hundred times, it just works so well for me. I, I enjoyed being able to piece those things together myself. I enjoyed that. The ending wasn't overly pedantic or anything. And so I think stylistically that just all worked. Any thoughts?
1: Yeah, I I agree, and the the idea of like letting it exist side by side again, the idea that these two narratives versus a movie, right? It's mm-hmm. yeah, you can do little things to connect it without having to be so heavy handed with the connections, and I think it, right. he does a wonderful job with that.
0: And I think it adds. Now that I'm thinking over it a bit more too, I think it adds to the overall mood of the thing. Mm-hmm of just at that ending, even with the architectural achievements, feeling, yes, haunted, and that something was something was wrong here. And mm-hmm. it doesn't... Even though Burnham, of course, I'm sure, in his life, never knew fully about Holmes, or certainly never would have taken, quote-unquote, credit for, you know, giving him covers, you know, there was... Like, 700,000 people visited that thing in one day. Like, I, I'm sure Burnham never once in his brain thought, gosh, what did we... Did we create cover for that kind of madness? Or, you know, something like that. Right. But just yeah and so it almost creates more of a haunted kind of unsettled shaky like the foundations of chicago soil or whatever mood to the it leaves me feeling that mood the whole book just knowing that these two things could happen and maybe there's no reason to connect them maybe there's profound reasons and i i don't know i yeah that decision the more i finished it and that quote sums it up the more it worked for me for sure yeah before we close out, any final thoughts on The Devil in the White City or Leonardo DiCaprio's eye color? <laughs> the important stuff.
1: <laughs> the important stuff. Um, is he? Would he play Holmes or would he play Yes. Oh, uh, you, oh
0: yeah. No, Holmes. You would not get him. Uh, remember how Holmes is supposed to be handsome and charming, like a once-in-a-lifetime find for these women. He was, you know, friendly, affectionate, and physically kind of open and... Oh my, he would have to be Holmes. <laughs> There's yeah. no way. I mean, granted, you know, he's he's aging too, despite his fighting of the of the passage of time and whatever, but yeah, I think it yes, you would not cast him. Now again, that movie idea might be dead. That was just old news headlines I picked up, but you'd have to cast an extremely handsome person, uh, attractive and charming to be Holmes. That's mm-hmm. the whole point, right? Yeah, you'd have to, that's true Burnham, I I honestly can't remember what Burnham looked like You know, I got a picture in my mind of Olmstead Just because we were so drawn to him But Burnham could be any kind of Maybe portly, he'd have to be a white man Right, I mean, unless you're gonna do some kind of fun Revisionist version, which could be cool Yeah,
1: he was also blonde and blue-eyed And he was really tall
0: Oh, yeah, okay At the beginning of the book, Larson did go out of his way to kind of, when he had that partner who died, he did sort of differentiate them and their personalities and their demeanors and, you know, what made each appealing. I, I remember that. I don't remember the details, but it was in there. So, yeah. Maybe we should send this pot off. I'll send it to Warner Brothers tomorrow or something, you know, just (laughs) 20th Century Fox. I don't even know who makes the big movies anymore. Netflix, I suppose. Be like, here you go. These are free notes, you know, or maybe I'll charge you 20 bucks. You know, here are our notes on the script. Feel free to send a pass our way if you need some feedback.
1: Mm-hmm,
0: mm-hmm anyway okay so before we do that <laughs> let's close out the pod uh we have been as always the lightly literary podcast follow us again on social media platforms on facebook and instagram we're there under one word lightly literary podcast rate and review us on itunes or wherever spotify if that's even possible there who knows just tell your friends rate and review all that good stuff We have other books coming up and so i'll tell you about them now in order in case you're curious or you want to get ahead on the readings or getting books from libraries or stores they are in order wild in america by david m friedman that's oscar Wilde, so wild with an e tracks by louis erdrich and churchill and orwell the fight for freedom by thomas e ricks just keep your eyes on the feed we'll be doing book recommendations for those and then book clubs as always the the usual cadence and rhythm of the pod We'll continue on. Any final thoughts today, Amanda, before we close out?
1: Uh, Nope, I'm good.
0: Excellent. Okay, well, as always then, folks, we'll see you between the pages.